I invite you today to turn to the book of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2, as we continue on in our series throughout John's gospel with this theme, Life in Jesus, the Son of God. John has written to us this account of selected uh, events of the life of Jesus Christ. He admits by his own, uh, by his own volition that, that it, everything that Jesus did could not be written. It couldn't be contained within any books on this side of eternity. But he has written with this idea in mind that, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we would have life in him. Eternal life new life, life that we can live not in our own futility and not in our own strength, but life that is fulfilling and, and that, is, that is victorious over sin because of Jesus Christ. And now in John chapter 2, we're going to look today at the balance of the chapter. A few weeks ago, we looked at, at verses 1 through 11 and, and saw that primary display of Jesus' power at the wedding in Cana. And now we're going to look at the balance of chapter 2 and look at the deity that's displayed by Jesus in these verses. I invite you to, to follow along as I read this, this, this passage of Scripture this morning. John 2, beginning in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Father, we thank you now for this few minutes we have set aside within our service to study the word of God together today. And we ask that as we pour over these pages and we we, we talk about the things that are written here and the application of them to our lives, that you would do your work in a mighty way today, that you would take the word of God that is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and that you would pierce our hearts today, that you would show us exactly who we are in light of your word, that you would show us exactly what we need from you today. Lord, for one who is here who doesn't know you as Savior, would you continue to, to hammer away at the rock of their heart with your word and show them the peace and hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. For a Christian 
who is struggling today with, with walking with you or living in a way that honors you, would you show them the, 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 way, of, uh, the way of living in, in victory over sin is only in you? And would you convict our hearts today of the sin that we so easily hold on to? And would you continue to purge us and mold us and make us into your image? Lord, I ask that you would help me to say only those things that would be helpful today. Lord, may I not get in the way of the work you want to do here. But may you receive all the honor and the glory and the praise for what is said and done here in our hearts today. your name we pray. Amen. When you see a a display of of power and authority, it really is an awe-inspiring thing. As I thought about that concept, and I thought about that idea of, of seeing the display of power and authority, my mind this week was taken back to when I was a teenager uh, in the summer living near Atlanta, Georgia. And, and I'll just tell you, that's no cakewalk, okay? Um, it's about 115 degrees, right? And uh, I was taken back, though, to one summer in particular as a teenager when my family, we, we packed up in the car and we drove about an hour or so away from our home towards, towards uh, the south part of Georgia uh, to take in an air show. I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to go and, and see, but, but on a hot Summer Atlanta day, we did. And we, we watched airplane after airplane. We went to tent after tent. Honestly, we just kept going to the tents because that's where the shade and the water was, right? But we stayed all day. And you know why we stayed all day? Because at the end of the air show, there is something that everyone comes to see. You know what that is? It's the Blue Angels. I mean, have you ever had the opportunity to see the, the Blue Angels, the, the Navy uh, the, 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 the show, right, that they put on. And these, these pilots, these men and women, they, they climb into their, their F-18 Hornets, and that's an incredible display of power and authority, right? They take these multi-million dollar airplanes that you and I pay for, by the way, okay? So, so it's great to go see, okay? And they dart across the sky at, at jaw-dropping speeds, performing stunts that, that I can't even replicate in a flight simulator, They truly have an authority in the cockpit and display the power of the American armed forces. You you cannot help but appreciate these men and women and the military branch they represent after watching one of their shows. When Jesus was here on earth, he displayed his deity time and again through these displays of his power and his authority. Sometimes that deity was displayed at a wedding in Cana like we looked at last time with a few people around. Other times, that deity was publicly proclaimed in his actions in front of hundreds or even thousands of people. In this passage before us today, in the rest of John chapter 2, Jesus declares his deity in his public actions, in his statements, and his signs. But, but we get more than that because we get a glimpse at his deity through John's pen as he records by inspiration what Jesus even knew about those who stood before him that no one else could have known except God himself. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus' deity sets him above all others. And his intimate knowledge of all people requires my response to him. Because Jesus isn't just a man. He is the Son of God. He is 100% God and 100% man, as John has showed us from the very beginning of his gospel. And so he, he, he is set above anyone else. And he has intimate knowledge of who you and I are. 
And because he is God, he has made us. And because he is God, he sustains us. And because he is God and he knows us, this all requires a response by us to him. You are God's creation. And as such, you are required to respond to God. And we see the ways throughout the book of John, and we'll see here today, the ways we we can respond to God and how we should respond to him. And so Jesus displays his deity in several different ways, and we'll just go through them today. And the first one here in in verse 12 begins with this cleansing of the temple that takes place. And and before we get to the cleansing of the temple, there's a a little bit of a transition statement in in verse 12 that talks about how how Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and and they weren't there very long. But Jesus... um, and his family, they traveled this, this area, and, and, and it's interesting to note that, that, that Capernaum was northeast of Cana, where that wedding was held at the, end of, or at the end of the last section here in chapter 2. It was a city that was set on the coast of Galilee, which is, by the way, because okay, if you think about it, they went northeast, but the scripture tells us that they went down to Capernaum, right? Now, we use that you know, I, I'm used to, I grew up in the South, so everything was up, right? You know, we're going to take a trip up. Now I live in Michigan, everything is, is down. I have totally had to rewire my thinking, right? When I say, we're going to go down, there isn't much up to go from here, okay? Well, in the scriptures, especially here in the Gospels, it, it refers to, to the elevation. Capernaum is, is by the Sea of Galilee. So you know how you get to Capernaum? You have to go, you have to go down to Capernaum. Jesus would eventually relocate to Capernaum, and it becomes the base of his ministry operations. And here, we read that he doesn't stay very long because of what's coming next. This trip to Jerusalem that's necessitated by an important event. That begins here in verse 13, where there's a time of commemoration that begins. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. One of the the most important events in the Jewish calendar is taking place at this point in the book of John. This is the celebration of the Passover. And now this, along with what's called the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, these are two other feasts that required all men's attendance in the city of Jerusalem. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So three times a year all the Jewish males from 12 years old and up had to go to Jerusalem, to the city, to celebrate these things that God had told them to set aside and celebrate. And so Jesus makes his way up to Jerusalem. And I think it's interesting to note, uh, again, as as you read through the scriptures, these are helpful things to understand just so you get the context, that that figure of direction is, again, used. Because Jerusalem is south of Capernaum. But you always go up to Jerusalem. One, because it's 2,500 feet above sea level. So you're always going up. Number two, because it is the capital, it is the holy city, it is where the temple is, where all the worship of God takes place in Jerusalem. So you're always going up to Jerusalem to be in God's city. The Passover feast of unleavened bread was held to recall to the minds of God's people his deliverance of them from Egypt, which is a very important point in Jewish history. 
Because the people of God had been enslaved for 400 years. And after that, God had miraculously freed his people and led them out of bondage into the promised land. And God, through Moses, you read in the book of Exodus, sent ten plagues upon the land of Egypt. Because the Pharaoh refused to let the people of Israel go. And that last plague was the killing of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And in order to avoid the consequences of this plague, God commanded that the blood of a lamb be painted on the doorposts of homes. We read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, For I will pass the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, I and the Lord." Now, the blood shall be a sign on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a terrible plague. This is a horrible thing that God was going to do. But it was, it was part of his judgment of sin. Because God always judges sin. But God did not leave his people without a way to redeem themselves. Without a way to, 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 to be exempt from this. And God instituted a feast to be held on that night as the Israelites ate a meal dressed and ready to leave the land. They were, ready, they were to be ready to be delivered from Egypt that night. And so each year on the 14th day of what's called the month Nisan, which corresponds roughly to our March and April every year, the Jews were to observe this feast in remembrance of that night. And what you learn as you go throughout the book of John is that the Passover really is a key feature in John's gospel. John records three separate Passovers. And why is that important? Well, because Jesus' life and death are the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. What God pictured for his people on that night, when they, when they had to take that lamb that had to meet the, the, very, the specifications and the qualifications, and they took it and they slaughtered it and they painted its blood on their doorpost, what he was signifying was the coming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Who would cover, not just cover, who would take away the sins of the world. And so, Jesus arrives here in Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And undoubtedly, you can imagine, if, if all the males from Jerusalem and, and all Jewish males from the Roman Empire from 12 years and up are required to come to Jerusalem, it's teeming with people. There are people everywhere in this city. And with so many people entering the holy city, there's always an opportunity for financial gain to be had. And, and we see that that potential profit has affected even the place of worship. There is a terrible reality that is going on in the city of Jerusalem. We read there starting in verse 14. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. You see, there were certain requirements that God placed on God's people as they traveled to Jerusalem for this time of celebration. First, uh, remember, you sit back in those verses, they weren't to come empty-handed. They were expected to bring an animal to offer as a sacrifice to God. And God had been very specific in his law, and if, if you don't believe me, take some time and read the, the book of Leviticus. Okay? You'll see the, the specifics that God lays out for his people that, that were going on at this time because Jesus had not died yet. God had been very specific on what was expected 
in the animal that was, that was to be brought. The types of animals, what occasions you were supposed to bring those animals, the abilities or the qualifications those animals must meet. And so these people were required to bring these animals with them when they came to Jerusalem. Now, second, they were also to pay a temple tax when they came. It was a half-shekel tax that was levied against all Jews, 19 and older, and it was used for the maintenance of the temple there, the things that were needed for the worship of God. You'll remember that the, 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 the priests and all of those who worked in the temple came from the tribe of Levi, and, and Levi has no inheritance. Has, he's, not, he's not given a portion of the promised land, but, but he lives in other places that God has designated, and the tribe there is taken care of by God and God's people as they lead in the worship of God. Well, as the years have gone by, and the people have become more spread out throughout the Roman Empire, there's been a new system, it seems, that's been instated. Because if you're traveling all the way down to Jerusalem, or you're coming all the way across the Roman Empire, you know what's really inconvenient? You have to drag that animal with you, right? Therefore, the opportunity arose for those animals to be sold on site for the worshipers to purchase and offer to God. Secondly, when you come to pay the temple tax, guess what you should not use to pay the temple tax? Well, you, you shouldn't use Roman money with the heathen inscriptions and the symbols. And you know who's on the Roman money, right? The likeness of Caesar himself. Well, that's never going to do. The temple tax was to be paid in the Jewish currency. So, of course, when you get there, you're going to have to take the Roman money and exchange it for the the half shekel that's needed so that you can pay your temple tax. And at the outset, do either one of those things sound like a bad idea? Well, no. I mean, we, we understand that, right? Listen, if you've ever driven anywhere in a minivan with your kids, you understand that dragging an animal along would be pretty, pretty rough too, right? Okay? I'm not comparing my kids to animals, okay? Don't walk out of here with that. Don't let that be the only thing you walk out of here with today, all right? I mean, that sounds, that sounds nice, right? Sounds convenient. Hey, if you're in the Roman government and they only deal in Roman currency, it's going to be hard-pressed maybe to find some Jewish currency to bring along and pay the temple tax. Indeed, it could be viewed as a great ministry or a help to God's people to help those people that, that that were supposed to help them in their worship of God. But what we see here is that's not what's happening. No, the terrible reality is that the surrounding area of the temple has become scene of inflated profits and shameful merchandising. First, I want us to consider the location of where this all took place. It doesn't take place outside the city. It doesn't take place within the commerce area of the city. It doesn't even take place in an area outside of the temple proper. No, instead, we read here in verse 14, as our text records, as John writes, and he found where? In the temple, those who sold the oxen and these things, the money changers. It doesn't take place outside, but inside. And that leads us to think, I mean, no self-respecting Jew is going to carry out these things inside the temple, right? This is where we must understand where it does take place. Outside of the sacred enclosure of the temple itself, there was a court that had been put around the temple. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. 
In this court, those who were not Jewish, but wished to learn about God and who he is, were to be welcomed in by those who were there to help the people worship, and by Jews to help them to understand who God is. And where are those who belong, who should have been hearing about God and his wondrous deeds, that place has now been turned into a market. The worshipful atmosphere is gone. The prayers and praise to God are drowned out by the bleeding of sheep and the bawling of oxen and the cooing of doves and the voices of men haggling over such animals and the merchants exchanging money. And all we can say is we can shake our heads and say, what a sham. What a horrible thing that is. Of all the places for this to occur, in the very place reserved for worship, and then specifically reserved for reaching out to people who aren't Jewish, is an awful thing. It is a terrible reality. And second, after we see where this happened, are the business practices that most certainly took place It is not hard to imagine the inflated prices that were most certainly charged for the animals that were sold here. I mean, after all, where else are you going to go to get such convenience? Nor is it hard to guess at the gouging of those exchanging currency. One commentator from his research stated that those exchanging money would most likely charge fees of up to 12.5% on that transaction. Now, We rely on human nature and other sources for for such information. The scripture's focus, that's the minor point, because the scripture's focus is where this takes place. And that's the greater offense here. As Jesus walks into the scene and he sees what's going on in the temple, he doesn't take it in stride. The Son of God has come to his Father's house and a day of reckoning on those inappropriately undertaking their business is coming in this place. We continue to read, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. We see Jesus taking back God's house this day, that Jesus does not stand for the blasphemous acts that are occurring in the temple. And and so, fashioning a whip of cords, he begins to bring things to a screeching halt. The cords that Jesus used there are most likely the, the ropes that have been used to tie the animals up within the court there. And we can only imagine, I mean, you, you begin to read, can you imagine the scene that begins to unfold? The animals are being driven out. The people are, are, are not, have no idea what's going on. The, the, the money changer tables are turned over. Again, do you imagine just these guys just, just trying to rake all those coins back in as they go flying everywhere? And maybe some, some less than honest people looking to get their money back, right, as the tables are turned over. But I want you to notice that through it all, we see Jesus' control over himself and over the situation. Jesus was not abusive of neither the animals nor the men. You say, well, he fashioned a whip of cords. Have you ever herded animals before? Sometimes it takes a little bit of that, right? 
We also read, what does he do with, with the birds and the cages? He doesn't take the cages and begin to indiscriminately dump the birds out everywhere, but he tells them to pick those cages up and to take them out, to remove them. And here, as we imagine the scramble, and those who are rushing to, to recover the, the animals and the funds dispersing in the area, this, this chaotic market scene has been disrupted by one man. Of course, we know he is not just a man, he is God. He is the Son of God and God himself. But imagine all of this going on. It's so normal. It's so, this is, this, is, this is so, in their minds, appropriate, right? All these people are worshiping God. And one man strides into the temple courtyard and, and turns the whole thing into chaos. Turns the whole thing in, on its head and says, you need to remove this and get it out of here. And they begin to obey. That is incredible in of itself. And indeed, as the disciples and others watch, there's prophecy that began to unfold before their very eyes. We read in Malachi verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. What Malachi said in Malachi 3 verses 1 through 3 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he stood in the temple that day. And as we said, throughout it all, he was in control. And I'm going to tell you right now, people say, well, was Jesus angry? Yes, Jesus was angry. He was angry at the sin that was not just being tolerated, but was being perpetuated by the religious leaders of Israel. But that anger was roused at which, that was, which was godly, not personal. And it was expressed in a controlled, godly way. And the anger that Jesus displays here and the actions he takes in that godly anger has roused some over the years. They look at a passage like this and they say, well, whatever happened to the loving Jesus? We must understand that love and anger are not mutually exclusive things. In fact, love expresses itself in anger when it is done correctly. I want you to imagine someone you love very much. Hopefully you don't have to think very far. But someone that you love. And something horrible is done to them. An offense, a crime is committed against them. And you say, oh well. It's nothing to get upset about. Would someone accuse you of being unloving in that situation? Because you didn't get angry at the offense that was done. You didn't get angry at the sin that was committed. You didn't get angry at the crime. And I'm not talking about going out and looking for vengeance against that person. But, but there is a level of loving anger which should be expressed, would be normal to be expressed, right? Anger is love if it is expressed properly. We get it confused, though, because more often than not... Our anger is not loving, but it is self-serving. Well, I was inconvenienced, therefore I am angry. 
That is not biblical anger. My, my little view of the world was challenged, so therefore I am angry. That is not, that is not biblical anger. And that is not what Jesus does here. Jesus sees a wrong that is clearly committed against God and against the word of God, and therefore he reacts in biblical righteous anger. Jesus' anger was righteous in both its object and its expression. We know from history that overlooking the temple grounds was a Roman garrison that was stationed at Fort Antonia. The fact that these men were not dispatched also lends credence to the observation of Jesus' control. I mean, if the Romans look out and see mass panic and hysteria and, and, and think that there's something really wildly wrong and out of control, what are you going to do? You're going to send some soldiers down there to keep the peace. Jesus' rebuke shows the sin, plain as can be, that they had made his father's house, he says, a house of merchandise. The solemnity and worshipful spirit had been traded for the crude, disruptive atmosphere of a marketplace. And this is unacceptable. And Jesus here claims a unique authority when he refers to the temple as my father's house here in verse 16. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. What he's declaring in that statement is he's declaring his exclusive position as the eternal son of God. Now, if you've read the Synoptic Gospels, if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you may realize that this is not the only time that this occurs. Actually, at the end of his ministry, Jesus cleanses the temple a second time at that Passover immediately preceding his death. And as the disciples watched this this event unfold on this day, And they eventually reflected the words of Psalm 69, which we read this morning, resonated in their minds. Indeed, Jesus' zeal for his father's house was a result of his righteousness. And as God, he was committed to the holiness that is due to God. And that holiness had been violated. And eventually, that second cleansing that Jesus would undertake a couple years later would lead to Jesus' death on a cross and would, fu- would fully fulfill the Messianic Psalm 69. In our own lives, are we so consumed with the worship of God as Jesus was here? No, we don't go to the temple to offer sacrifices any longer, but we should be equally passionate about our worship of God. And I'm here to tell you, because this happens in my own life as much as anyone else, that we let the cares and the concerns and the distractions of this world cut into our worship of God. This happens in our private worship of God as well as our corporate worship. And the question we have to ask is this, what are we willing to do to protect the sanctity of our worship to God? Do we become so jealous of our private time with God and his word or our corporate gathering with other believers that we will set aside that which is even most dear to us? And unfortunately, this is so often not the case in our lives. Instead of setting it aside, we fill our lives with everything else that will crowd it out. And then we say, well, hopefully I'll have time for God too. We fill our lives with sports 
We engage with our, with our electronic devices. We entertain other thoughts or activities or events. And we make it easy to wander away from devoted times of worship. But our entire lives are to be devoted to worshiping God. And so we have to think that way. We have to, to in God's, with God's help, wire our brains to think about living a life of worship and therefore engaging in those times of specific set-aside worship. You realize that what you do on a Saturday has ramifications for your effectiveness for worship on Sunday? I used to say this all the time when I was a youth pastor, and, and, and teens dragged themselves into church on Sunday morning. Hey, what'd you do last night? Oh, I stayed up till 2 a.m. Well, this is going to be a great Sunday school, right? What you and I do on a Saturday has ramifications for what happens here on a Sunday. Let's take it a step further. What you do tonight has ramifications on whether or not you're going to make it out of bed tomorrow in time to read God's Word. What you tolerate throughout the day, if you read your, your, your Bible at night, has ramifications of whether or not you're going to have time to spend with God at night. Everything, worship is a way of life. And so everything leads us, or should be worshipful and should be pleasing to God, but, but everything we do should lead us to these times that we have set aside for God. And when worship to God is not prioritized, the balance of life is dangerously in jeopardy. One author said it this way, the way we worship reveals what we think about God. The way you and I worship reveals a lot about what we think about who God is. And I'm just not talking about the songs we sing, but the attitudes we bring in and the way we view that worship. And Jesus sought to correct this problem in the temple that day. In the lives of Christians, the Holy Spirit convicts us of this today, and he calls for our submission to him by our actions. And as we continue on in this passage, we see the reaction of those who witness this event, and we see that Jesus displays his deity in predicting his own resurrection here. Look at verse 18, and look at this this self-righteous demand that's made by these, these men. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? The Jews confronting Jesus in verse 18 are probably the temple police or maybe representatives from the Sanhedrin or or both, honestly. And in their demand here, we learn several things about them. But but before that, we must understand what it is they're demanding. They're not coming to Jesus saying, hey, do you, have, do you have a brochure on who you are? Do you have information about who you are? No, what they're doing is they're coming to him looking for some kind of proof of his authority. Because they look around and see what he's just done, and, and they, begin to, they begin to put some of the pieces together. Well, this, there must be something, but we need to, we need to demand a, a sign. We need to demand something out of him. Jesus has taken upon himself an action that he has no appointment or, in their minds, right to do. And now they expect some sign from him to prove that he has that authority. And with this, we observe a couple of things. First, I think it is interesting, they don't outright arrest him. They don't walk up and say, you know, come with us. No, this shows that they at least somewhat understood what has happened here that day. What they observed was not a mere man, but was perhaps the actions in their mind of the Messiah. 
And secondly, I think we should note the absurdity of the request. Because Jesus has just given them a clear sign. The cleansing of the temple is the only sign they should have needed that he is who he says he is. His actions that should have been able to be resisted but were not should have led them to understanding who he is. And then third, let us note what they avoid. They avoid their own conviction. The commercialization of the prescribed temple worship was wrong. The greediness of the merchants was horrid. Their desecration of God's house was unthinkable. But these hard-hearted men are not about to admit it. Instead of coming and saying, yeah, we shouldn't have done that, they walk up to him and said, who told you, where's your authority from? What makes you right? Why do you get to do that? And what they're doing is, is instead of, of submitting to God and realizing they were wrong, they are entrenched in their ways and their actions, and they would continue to defend those sinful actions to the very end. The proper response to conviction of sin is always confession and repentance. The proper response to conviction of sin is always confession and repentance. Forgiveness and peace are only found when we are honest with God. But these men stand resolute in their resistance of Jesus, and they will receive an unsatisfactory answer to their inquiry. And we see the the, the misunderstood statement that Jesus makes here in verse 19, when Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews say, say, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Throughout the book of John, you see this clash that goes on. There is a clash between unbelieving hearts and the truth of who Jesus is. There are those who just, they are, they are set in their ways. They will not believe in who Jesus is, though they have been shown time after time after time that he is the son of God. He is the only way to God. He is the, the righteous God himself in the flesh. They refuse to believe. And here, Jesus' statement is one of those times because Jesus is not subject to anyone else's demands because God does not answer to the creation. Jesus, therefore, speaks to those ones gathered the truth, though it is veiled from the unbelieving heart. Now, if you've read the other Gospels, you you run across then these things we call parables. The book of John records no parables of Jesus, but this statement that Jesus makes here serves the same purpose of a parable, in that a parable gives truth of God, but while while doing so, it veils from the unbelieving heart the, the, the deeper meaning. And what it's doing is it's revealing really the heart of man. A parable and a statement like this reveals truly one who is seeking to know God and one who wants nothing to do with God. These men are only interested in the temporal earthly things of life that they deal with. They do not wish to know more about the Savior. So when Jesus makes this statement, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, they they don't understand what he's talking about. The recent events in the temple proper that day have colored their understanding of the statement. But we have to see further that their rejection of Jesus also meant they also don't pursue any clarification on that statement. 
They, they don't say, what does that mean? They don't, they don't seek further understanding. Instead, they answer only the way they understand, in confusion. They say, hey, th- this temple here that sits in Jerusalem, it took 46 years to build this temple. Now, this temple was one that was built after the Jews returned from the exile. Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And then later, after the temple had been rebuilt under Ezra, in 20 B.C., Herod the Great began an expansion and reconstruction of the temple. Probably that's what's referred to here. It will bring us up to this time. But it is interesting to note that that even though that went on, uh, Herod the Great actually didn't finish um, the, the final details on the temple until almost 70 A.D. Do you know what happened in 70 A.D.? The Romans destroyed the temple again. And so these men ponder how one man could make such a claim. Because what he proposes is impossible. That, that what's taken men 46 years, he, he can't do by himself in one day. But as John clarifies for us, Jesus spoke not of the physical temple. Instead, he was speaking of his body and his coming resurrection. In fact, when Jesus says here, I will raise it up in verse 19... Those Greek words refer to, uh, one of their uses refers to resurrection from the dead. That's what he's talking about. The greatest sign that Jesus would ever give to man is his rising from the dead and ultimate victory over sin and Satan. And I love, John's already told you the ending, by the way. He says here, he goes on uh, talking about the disciples and, and how they didn't understand the statement. But he says in, in verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the end is already coming. That is a set thing that Jesus will rise from the dead as, as John records that he did. And when Jesus did that, when Jesus rose three days after his crucifixion, and claim victory over sin and Satan, the temple in Jerusalem, with all its sacrifices and all its importance, would cease to have meaning in the place of God's plan. That is how God designed it. That when the Son of God came, the sacrifices, it all becomes obsolete. They were all temporary, pointing ahead to the real and lasting hope for salvation, the Messiah. We read that even Jesus' own disciples were confused by that saying of Jesus. However, what did they do? They continued to follow and trust. And one day their faith was made sight in this statement. And after the resurrection, they remembered the statement and they recognized its realization. And they would believe fully the Old Testament scriptures referencing the work of the Messiah, seeing those things realized in Jesus alone. No one can take back his own life Once it is lost. No one but God alone. And he did that. And he offers us hope. So thus having been turned away by Jesus, the unbelieving Jews let him depart it seems. And and we see Jesus' continued action throughout the Passover. And this is where we see our last thing today. We see the consciousness of true reality in Jesus in verses 23 through 25. We see That now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So we see the works that are performed by Jesus while in Jerusalem throughout the feast. Jesus continued to show himself and his power to God's people. Now these are some of the things that John alludes to at the end of the book here. 
uh, talking about how Jesus did many other signs and works. We're not told here what Jesus did, but, but we can assume that what he did were miraculous things that had never been seen before in the lives of those who experienced and observed those things. And what we read at the outset seems to be very encouraging. It says, I mean, you read it, right, in verse 23, that many, what, believed in his name when they saw that. However, Jesus' response and John's explanation gives us a different picture of what is occurring here in Jerusalem. We see the hearts that are untrusted. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You see, what was happening is that while many professed belief in Jesus, Jesus did not do so in them. This is literally the same word in verse 23 and verse 24. It says that Jesus, in verse 24, did not believe in those, if you go back to verse 23, who claimed to believe in him. You can say it this way, he had no faith in their faith. These are men and women who are attracted to the signs that they saw, but they are not willing to commit themselves to the Savior. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there are always those who were present for the signs and wonders, but they had no trust in God. They enjoyed the free food and the free health care that he offered, but they didn't want the true heart change and freedom. They, they didn't want the new master of their lives. These ones in Jerusalem, they mentally assented to the fact that Jesus is a powerful and he does incredible things. But mental assent isn't the same as true belief. Jesus is God. And as such, knows the heart of every man. And just as Jesus displayed his deity in cleansing the temple and predicting his own resurrection, Jesus now displays his deity by seeing what is in the hearts of ones gathered to him. And John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shares that with us. He knows who has truly placed faith in him for salvation and who hasn't. God knows your heart better than anyone else. No one can tell you if you trust Jesus as your Lord or Savior or not. That is between you and God. We can point you to the scripture and show you what it says, but you must make a personal decision to place your complete belief and trust in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior to find eternal life. And if you do that, you are secure in him. But a major problem that we must understand to get to that point is the problem we have of understanding our own hearts. You go up today to anyone on the street and say, hey, what do you think your heart's like? Well, I'm I'm a pretty good person, right? I'm pretty decent. But God knows our hearts better than we do. He said in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You try quoting that to people on the street, right? But that's the truth. You and I have a sin problem, and we need a Savior. We are broken. We need healing and deliverance. And if you think Jesus is a nice person or a good man or incredibly powerful or morally righteous and full of loving kindness, you're not wrong. 
But you also have not fully realized who Jesus is. You have not come to a complete trust in him as your Lord and Savior. The fact that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords who came to this earth to offer you his life, that is the reality of who Jesus is. He is the answer to all of life's questions. He is the hope for all mankind, the Lord and Savior of all who trust him. And there is a great comfort and conviction in the omniscience of God that Jesus displays here because God knows the hearts of all. And if you have cried out to him and placed your trust in him alone for deliverance from your sin, he knows this and gives you a peace and security that no one else can take away. The enemy may whisper into your heart that there is no hope for you, but God holds all secure in him who trust in him. That is a promise from God himself. But also, the omniscience of God is a great conviction to the soul who has never trusted him. If you like the idea of Jesus, if you like the idea of God, but on your own terms, God knows this. The mark of a Christian is submission to the lordship of Jesus. And if you've been saved from sin by him, you naturally live for him. So what does that look like in your life today? Jesus' deity throughout this passage is on display for all to see. And the question we must ask is, is how have we responded? Do we know him personally? Jesus' deity sets him above all others, and his intimate knowledge of all people requires my response to him. At this Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus clearly displayed his deity for man to see. One such man, John, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to record for us what happened, and we see more because those who were standing there that day didn't know the thoughts of Jesus or or even knew the things that would be fulfilled at the resurrection. You cannot deny these incredible displays. Jesus cleansed the house of his heavenly father, single-handedly cleansing temple worship. He predicted his own death and resurrection. And then he displayed his power yet again with signs, knowing what was in the heart of every person. And as one author has rightly said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And I'm here to tell you from the testimony of the scriptures, he is Lord of all. The gospel of John Reproves this repeatedly. And as Lord, he calls for your response. He calls for you to trust him as Savior, and he calls for your acquiescence to his rule over your life. Very simply, have you found life in Jesus, the Son of God? Have you trusted and truly confessed your sin to him, repented of that sin, and placed your unwavering trust in him alone for eternal security? He is the only one worthy of that trust. He is the only one who can give you that hope, and he is the only one who can give you the peace that you desire. There are so many who claim Christ but fail to live it. My question is, do you content yourself to confessing Christ with your mouth, but all the while fail to live it out in reality? Showing up at church, giving to God's work, and doing some nice things doesn't make you godly. Godliness is found in giving your entire being to his control. Christian, are you wrestling with 
with restlessness? Are you seeking more satisfaction? Do you feel a wish for more in your own life? Are you apathetic towards the things of God? You must answer them the question, what is between you and the Lord? What is it that he wants from you that you are unwilling to submit? And if you truly know him, he continues to mold you, to make you, and to convict you. Belief in Jesus isn't assenting that he existed or seeking a get-out-of-hell-free privilege. It is submission to a new master who has freed you to serve him and not yourself. So let us see the, the deity of Jesus Christ and let us serve the King of Kings with new life today. Father, we thank you for your word and for its power to change our lives. We thank you for this testimony of Jesus Christ and his strength and deity and, and power that day. Lord, we thank you for your work in our hearts and lives through that word. And we ask that you would do that work today. Lord, I don't know what hearts here today are wrestling with. Lord, there may be one today who is here who wants to know for sure where they will spend eternity when they die. There is one here who has wrestled with that question time after time after time. Lord, would you show them the answers from your word? Would you give them the courage and the boldness to speak to someone today that they can go home today knowing their eternity is settled? Or there may be one who has spent their entire life in church or around church or doing good things, but has never made you the Lord of their life. Or would you show them that salvation isn't saying and doing the right things? Salvation is in Jesus Christ. And still, Lord, there are Christians who sit here today who perhaps are wrestling in their own hearts and lives with apathy, not caring about what God thinks, with restlessness, wanting more out of life, and Lord, may they see that that only comes through serving you. May we see that true fulfillment is only found in Jesus Christ and submitting to him and following him. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to do your work in our hearts today. May we guard our worship of you. Lord, may we truly See change wrought because you have convicted us and we have submitted to you. We ask your blessing as we depart from this place and we pray that you would bring us back together tonight to worship you once again, to learn from your word. In your name we pray, amen.